Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. I will read just a few verses, the verses that are printed on the insert with an outline. But we'll look at verses, uh, verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter, chapter 44. Uh, as a reminder, the way the prophets um, are organized as far as the books, it's not like when Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians, it was a letter he probably wrote in one sitting and then sent off to Ephesus um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for sure. Uh, then the church received that, copied it, passed it on to other churches. Isaiah is most likely the collection of his teachings over the course of a 50-year ministry. Uh, he had a regular message, a regular preaching, teaching ministry. is uh, pastoral in many respects, in an interesting time in the life of God's people, of course, as so much was happening outside of them with Assyria and then Babylon and Persia. But Isaiah was a prophet giving the word of God. And over time, he would repeat the same message, you would imagine. And then at some point, most likely toward the end of his life, he would uh, accumulate uh, and uh, assemble all of his message into the book as we have it. And so there's some overlapping that will happen, but it basically covers the chronology of his ministry. And we're in the middle section of the prophecy where he is preparing the people of God to undergo exile. They're about to go into a time of great duress. It's been difficult for them, uh, surrounded by more powerful pagan nations with all sorts of religions and philosophies and gods they worshipped. Uh, but it's going to get worse for them. In less than a 100 years, the Babylon will take over, exile many of them, deport them to uh, Babylon. Uh, they'll lose their identity for a time, I mean, not completely, and he'll call them back to the land. But he's preparing for them for that time of exile, when they'll be in Babylon, and they'll need to remember who the true and living God is. Of all places to be, Babylon. I mean, the name itself is the, the gateway of the gods. And so they're going to go into a period of all sorts of false, false religion upon them. They have to know the truth. And that's what God is preparing them for. Wonderfully, this is an, a, a timeless message for the people of God, wherever we find ourselves. We have to be reminded again that we serve the true and living God, that he has called us, delivered us, redeemed us, and we are his. And so this will help us just like it helped the people of God in this time. The advantage we have is we've seen the fulfilled prophecy in all of it realized in the only faithful servant of Israel ever, Jesus. So we have the wonderful benefit of this fulfilled prophecy as we read this text. So here as I read just three verses to begin. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, please give us understanding of your holy word. Though the text is ancient, the message is timely. We see ourselves in your people of old, indeed our spiritual ancestors. 
We acknowledge you as our King and our Savior. Yet, we are prone to weakness and to wavering. Please strengthen our faith in you by the ministry of your Holy Spirit through your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know that a common marker for religions in the world is idolatry, worshiping man-made stuff. Man-made religions with man-made stuff to worship. Israel was called to be a beacon among the nations about who the true God was. Uh, the nations making literal idols to worship with names for them and things they were supposed to oversee, yet they were things crafted from stuff. And these idols were the moniker for the religions around. And so Israel, worshiping the true and living God, they were supposed to be beacons of light about that God so that people would turn from their idols to the true God. But God has to teach Israel this truth over and over again, just as we need to hear it over and over again, that we might remember our purpose to be a beacon for the true and living God so that people will turn from their idols and turn to him. The middle verses of this chapter, uh, we have before us uh, a mockery, if you will, of the pathetic imitations for God. He starts out in the first verses that we'll look at, starting in verse 6, reminding and declaring how he is the only God. This, again, is against the backdrop of people claiming all sorts of gods. Then he shows how foolish uh, these false religions and ideas and idolatries are in the middle section. And then he closes the chapter, which leads right into, blends into the next chapter, closes the chapter by reminding not only is he the only God, as he started out, but he's the only Savior. The only true God, all these others are false, and so the only way of salvation comes through him. Now, it's common today, you probably hear it, maybe you have friends that will talk, they know you're religious, right? They, I call you religious. I can't stand when people call me religious. I'm not religious. Religious is you follow a bunch of rules and that maybe gets you right with God. That's not what we do. That's not what we believe. But they'll know you're religious because you're spending all this time at church on Sunday. Uh, you, you know, there's things about you that kind of stand out. And so they'll say to you something like, you know what? I'm not what you are, but I'm something, I'm this. And it, it really, they're all the same eventually or essentially. They all kind of, there's many ways to God, uh, that you can find. It's just not true though. It's not what the God of the Bible declares. That's not what he says about himself. It's really not what any of the faiths say about themselves and it doesn't matter. Although religions have many things in common, and they do, all religions do not ultimately teach the same thing. And that's what God's declaring about himself to Israel in the midst of all these other faiths and philosophies. Only Christianity provides the answer for what can save lost humanity. Now let's look at this opening declaration, starting in verse 6. There is only one true God. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. The Lord is declared the King of Israel. He declares himself as the ruler. He's not a person. Uh, the ancient nations would often make their rulers deities. Um, you know, The Pharaoh of Egypt would be considered deity somehow. Or uh, the king of Persia would be a god in, in and of himself. 
but God's saying something otherwise. Israel's king was God. The men who occupied the throne were servants of the great king, God. God declares himself the king, but he also declares himself the redeemer. Thus says the Lord, the king of Israel and his redeemer. So he's God and he's savior at the same time. They needed more than just physical salvation. That was always what was on their mind. That was what was pressing. But the reality is they needed spiritual deliverance and redemption. That's what they needed. And that's the thing that God could provide that no other king could. Physical, yes, but most importantly, spiritual. He was their king and their savior. He buys them out of slavery to their sins. And his way is by giving them a redeemer. The only God, both king and redeemer. Verse 6, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. One of the wonderful features of living now is we have the completed scriptures to look through to see and understand Isaiah better. One of the most oft-quoted prophets, books for that matter, in the whole of the New Testament. And so, how is it that God will be our Redeemer? How will he provide this? And we learn it when Christ comes. When God himself comes and provides the salvation. In fact, in the book of Revelation... Jesus speaking says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Again, what does God say in verse six, the second part about himself? I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now, there are difficult passages in the scripture to interpret. What do they mean? This is not one. I am the first. I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. All religions are not the same. In fact, that's one of the most damning lies of the devil is to make people believe that. Jesus is God. God is Savior. There is only one true God. If you would do a search for classes on religion, as I have done, I find interesting what their curriculum would say. I've always wondered, as I was looking through the JUCO class list for my son, I couldn't help see Intro to World Religions. I would love to take that class. Uh, it had part of the curriculum listed, and on the first page was the intro to the course, and it had a bit of what the first, I guess, couple lectures would be. And there was a listing... Basically, it said, uh, this class will study uh, the idea or notion of deity and a deity, a deity. And it had a listing of over a 100 different possible titles that people might apply to what they thought was God. I started reading through these. Absolute spirit, some call it, whatever God is to them. An absolute consciousness with capitals. The causeless cause. Conscious universe, the divine, divine mystery, divine presence, evolutionary spirit, great consciousness, great mystery, higher power, infinite essence. I was shocked when I read all these that there aren't more heavy metal bands with these names. I mean, uh, infinite wholeness is just waiting to be taken by somebody. There's Krishna, larger self, mother universe. Uh, nameless one, original essence, the source, the eternal now, the flow of life 
or life force, the infinite, the good, the great spirit, the Tao, the force even makes it on here. The supreme, the universal one, the ultimate, the universe or, or living universe, total reality, universal oneness. In, in this interesting little explanation says to the class person or to the student, you may interpret the above names to mean or reflect any individual name or combination of names or states of a personal God, impersonal, ultimate, or science or humanistic reality, totality com- concept that you would like to use. I am the first. I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. Knowing that there was opposing religion and teaching and philosophy, after making his bold declaration, he calls out a challenge to the listeners. Verse 7 in front of us. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare it and set before me. Since I appointed an ancient, an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. If there's another God, he's saying, step forward and prove it. Make your claim, just like he did. Show that you are the true God. He has called a people to bear witness to the fact of his being God. Now, those people have not been faithful, but the history of those people cannot be denied, and the the nations recognized it. That God, over and over again, intervened in front of many witnesses over the decades and the centuries to repeatedly redeem these people. He had called these ancient people and their life and the redemption he provided them was a witness to his being the true and living God. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. It's a bit of a challenge to his own doubting people as well as those who would be looking on. You remember who formed you, people? Remember who made you? Remember who appointed you? Verse 8, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Come on, people, my people, you know, it's true. You have witnessed my many redemptive acts. You are in turn as a result of this to be witnesses about these things. And people of God, if you believe what the Bible says, if you believe its record, you will know when someone says something of another religion that it's false. Because you'll know what we have seen God do, what we have been given witness concerning, what God's Spirit has has made clear to us with this record we have over the centuries, repeating these, these stories over and over in perfection, and we have before us knowledge of the true and living God and what He has done. Fear not or be afraid. Haven't I told you? There are many, many imitations of God. That's what you have circulating all around us. In the particular practice that God calls out at this point, starting in verse 9, is the practice of idolatry. Now, modern audiences, modern Christian audiences, we sometimes will tune out a bit because we hear about idolatry and it's usually usually, um, focusing on the things that are good things that we make ultimate things and there are books about it and it's all good because we appreciate this in our culture. Materialism, things that become idols to us. But let's for a moment appreciate how real idolatry in the sense that the Bible's laying out here in the front level sense, it's still real today, even for us. And I'm talking actual crafted items that people give devotion to, worship, uh, have superstitions about, trust in some way, pray towards. 
It's not just uh, in other countries that they do this. We see this in America still today. I mean, you could drive through any subdivision and see statues of Mary watching over stuff. You could see cars you pull up, you know, at the stoplight with, and they've got saints that are in the back of their windows, or they've got a crystal hanging. And these things mean more to a lot of people than you might think. There's more blatant idolatry than you actually might think of. Um, and this is the thing that he is focusing on with the people of God, that these idols that have been crafted, all representing different religions and philosophies and ideas, these are the things he's calling out and saying they're silly, they're empty, you can't trust them, they're not real. And so he lays this diatribe in this way. And we'll consider more the importance of us taking heed when we hear this uh, in a moment. Verse 9, though. All who fashion idols are nothing. He doesn't waste any time. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witness neither see nor know. Their witnesses see nor know that they may be put to shame. Other witnesses can't testify to anything they have done great, unlike God. And those who make the idols, who actually craft the statues and the little gold figures and so forth, they're nothing themselves. And the things they make are nothing. They provide nothing for you. Now, I want us to think about this for a moment. Think about idolatry as it's displayed in the scriptures, and then we'll kind of expand it a bit to think of how it applies to us. But I think you'll realize that even at the front level, what he's addressing here does apply to us. It's not that we just have to stretch it into things that are idols of our hearts. Those are true, uh, but there's more. There's explicit idolatry that happens even in our own lives. Now, why is this important? Ultimately, at the root of idolatry is taking God off the throne and worshiping or trusting something else. And God is a jealous God. In the purest, most righteous way, one could be jealous. No glory is going to be shared with something else. And so of all people, when his people put devotion in something else, created things, this is an affront to God. It's all around us, but when it comes into the church itself, that's when it's such an affront to our covenant God. It starts in at least explicitly in the book of Exodus, when Moses is called of God to lead Egypt out of, or lead Israel out of Egypt. Now what's unique about Egypt? Not much. They're like the other nations. Multiple gods for everything you can imagine with statues and things, and Pharaoh is supposed to be God, and they've got uh, all sorts of, of items that we still have that we have found that show of, about their idol worship. And so he's calling them out of Egypt, and he's giving them himself as their new identity, the true and living God. Uh, and he says in the commandments that he gives, the first two commandments are around this whole point. So that's why we know it's important for every age, and us included. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So from the onset, at the beginning of the forming of his people, at least as in a national identity, um, idolatry is a big deal. It displaces devotion and trust in glory. In our catechism uh, that we have to teach what the meaning of these things is. The 47th question, what's the first commandment? The first commandment forbids the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God in our God. And giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to him alone. So the first commandment sets up what 
comes in the second, which is don't make graven images. Don't make stuff. Don't make gods out of stuff. What is required in the second commandment? That's the 50th question or the 50th answer. The second commandment requireth the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God hath appointed in his word. His word has to direct it. Otherwise, we could be guilty of erecting idols, even with good intentions. The commandment about idolatry is repeated multiple times in Leviticus and then again in Deuteronomy. Virtually all the prophets make reference to idolatry as being a main problem for the people of God. And one of the things that made them drift away from their devotion to God, drift away from their trust in God. During the time of exile that happens uh, over a hundred years after the time of Isaiah, when the people of God find themselves in Babylon and God is working through Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king. Um, and then his son Belshazzar comes. And even though Nebuchadnezzar had a bit of a revival and understanding in his life, Belshazzar took it back to worshiping idols again. And so listen to the words of God to Belshazzar. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and who are... Whose are all your ways you have not honored. So he calls him out on his idolatry in front of his people. Then Jesus, all the teachings that could summarize it, I think the best summary happens in Matthew 22. Someone asks Jesus, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds, he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. God first. God only. Worship him. Your heart must be fixed on him. And you see how idolatry, focusing our heart on something else, is an affront to our God in this respect. And it's idolatry. Paul talks about how there's a digression that happens for people. People know there's a God because they can see creation around them. But they don't know how to know that God personally. And oftentimes, what you see happen, unless God intervenes, is a digression. And it looks like what Paul says in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools." and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man in birds and animals and creeping things. So the digression of sin leads us to idolatry of one form or another. This makes it all the more brave to note that the apostles, when they were preaching in Athens, Athens, Greece, you know, just a complete den of idolatry, um, philosophy and teaching and in the architecture and the religions that they had. And here, there's, there's Paul teaching, and he's saying uh, to the crowds that are listening at the Areopagus, for in him we live and move and have our being. He's teaching one God. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, Paul says, 
We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art, by the art and imagination of man. And later he says to the Corinthians who live in a similar, similar kind of area culturally. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In Colossians, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So it's a recurring theme. It's something we've got to be aware of. We have to think about how does this apply to us? Where might we fall into idolatry? Now, back to the text. We'll consider that in a moment. Verse 9. All who fashioned idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? He's calling them out. The various superstitious pieces that were made for worship, they were made by people, not gods. These false idols, these gods, have no impact or actual effect on anything. They're profitable for nothing. No witnesses to their greatness or power. And no witnesses means shame. He calls out those who make such silly statues and objects in verse 10. And then verse 11. Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. And the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. Let They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. He'll call out all those inventors of things that people are worshiping. Man-made idols or man-made devotions are worthless and empty. Mere humans can't make gods. Yet people would bow down and worship man-made stuff. They will eventually be in terrible shame over the display of this devotion because it's silly. Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. So you get the picture of this big, strong ironsmith who's crafting idols that people will worship. Uh, he's spending all this labor doing it. He's the maker of these things that people will worship. But yet, look at the description as it goes on. He hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. He's showing us how ridiculous idols are, how crazy it is to put stock or devotion or faith or trust or worth into man-made stuff. The person who makes it can barely even get through making it without having to take a break. It's almost comical. The God-maker needs to take a break for refreshment while he's making the gods that people were trusting. A weak human makes a strong God. Now, when we think about idolatry in our own lives, we commit idolatry because we seek to satisfy our sinful desires. I guess that's a simple way to put it. To satisfy our desires over God and his will. We all struggle with this in some fashion. And perhaps in our culture, we tend to worship at the altar of self-interest. You know, what promotes me? Um, Greed about getting something. Uh, personal achievement, personal security, and self-satisfaction. It's about me. I may, maybe the idol is me. That's the problem. But make no mistake, we may not have the little statues of gold or silver, but we do have physical things that we live for, that we trust in, that we put faith in. Maybe it's the credit card payment for all the stuff we live for that you have to worship. You know, I don't worship it, no, but you're spending a ton of your time slave to it. 
Stuff that's already worn out and we're still having to work to pay for. Stuff that we wanted or had to have because it was going to make a difference. It could be the house that costs entirely too much, but we're going to live in it. No matter what it costs us in our time spent and resources expended. No, we don't have little gold statues that we bow down before. We just might have a piece of property with a building on it that we do. It could be the car that straps us with payments. It could be any number of physical, material things that we place too high a value on and spend too much of our devotion with. It could be a superstitious statue of Mary in your front lawn. It could be the house itself. Well, the total silliness of idolatry has brought home with a scenario that that just lays it out. It just it, It's the kind of thing where when you're in the middle of it, we don't see it. But if we sit down and someone says, let, let me tell you a story, you might get it better. And this is what we have for us, starting at verse 13. The carpenter stretches a line. This is the guy who makes idols that people worship. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into figures of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. You see this idol maker. He, But look at what he has to do to make this idol. He cuts down cedars. Or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak. It doesn't really matter. I mean, what tree it is. He lets it grow strong among the trees in the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. So this man who makes idols has to plant trees. It could be any number of trees. Not really, doesn't really matter that much. So where is the worth coming to this idol? That's the question you want to ask as you go. Uh, then it becomes fuel for man. Now, the trees aren't just used for idols. I mean, they burn them as well. Uh, they become fuel for man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, so he cooks food with that same tree that he's cutting a part off to make an idol with. Also, he makes a god and worships it. It's like, oh, by the way, I've got several things I'll do with this tree. One of them is to make a god. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. I mean, that's not the dumbest thing you've ever seen. Isn't it good we don't do that? Half of it burns in the fire, verse 16. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. I sometimes wonder if the idol we struggle with is our stuff and our things to the point where if you threaten our stuff or our things, that's when we get mad. To face the name of our God, we'll live with it. But if you take our stuff away, if you mess with, if you tax me too much, or if you take this thing, or you don't let me get this, or I don't have complete freedom to have this or that, now I'm going to be mad. Interesting, isn't it? Verse 18. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. Such idol makers and worshipers are spiritually blind and dull to apparently place trust in such silly man-made things. They can't see the folly of their ways. Verse 19, no one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its cold. I mean, when you're looking at the little idol and the thing, they got to be thinking, you know, the best of that tree I, I had a stake over, and the, the other half I burned just to keep it, and the other half now I'm worshiping it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? The climactic description of the idol worshiper is in verse 20. He feeds on ashes. 
he feeds on ashes. That's what idol worship is. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Now, I want to switch gears because I don't want to miss this point because something else is apparent. Idolatry has to do with putting devotion in man-made stuff rather than in God. Giving credit or giving glory or giving honor to something man-made rather than giving it to the only one who deserves it all, who is God. So this also means that most of the world religions qualify for idolatry. Yes, this is where it gets real. Uh, But it's true. Um, They're made up by men. That's what they are. They have created objects, uh, and they've given some kind of credit or veneration to it, some kind of devotion to it, and people make pilgrimages to it, or they have things in their homes, or they trust in these things, or they believe in these philosophies that are man-made. Although religions have many things in common, all religions do not ultimately teach the same thing. Only Christianity provides the answer for what can save lost humanity. The Christian faith is based on revealed truth, not somebody's invention. Creation reveals a creator. People know that there is a God because of what they can see, but they don't know how to be related to that God without him specially revealing himself. We have to have revelation, trustworthy revelation, attested revelation, proven revelation. And Christianity is a revelation-based faith. God reveals himself through the prophets and the apostles and ultimately through the focal point of the prophets and the apostles, God himself incarnate, Jesus. And we have, over the course of many centuries, repeated same witnesses over this message that God has and this thing God has done through Christ. I mean, from the time it was revealed to the time it was fulfilled and to our day today, we've been able to test it over and over to see it. To And there's no one that has proven any of it wrong. And we have multiple witnesses. It's not like God did something in private where nobody could see. Hundreds and thousands of people witnessed the different redemptive acts and gave testimony to it. And no one until German scholars somehow got smarter in the 1920s did anyone say, maybe they were all wrong, those people who saw it with their own eyes. So we have this text. It's not a man-made thing. We couldn't make this up even if we tried what God has done through grace. The idols that we have take religious form that we have in this day, in this age. When studied, we quickly see how the religions of the world are man-made and simply varied forms of idolatry. Hinduism is often given credit for being the oldest religion. I don't understand this exactly because the texts they have that they call authoritative, which is very difficult to understand. It's just a bunch of poems and kind of gibberish about thoughts about life and stuff. I mean, you might, it might have been written in the 70s. At any rate, it doesn't date farther back than our Old Testament. So it's not as ancient as one would have you believe, although the Canaanites believed some kind of, some kind of polytheistic religion when Abraham came. So that idolatry may have been around for sure. Where do they get their revelation about truth? It's a highly developed system of sayings and it changes through time, but it has the basic idea. There are many gods. You create your own destiny. Self is most important. 
one being of ultimate oneness, infinite representations of gods and goddesses, many manifestations of gods and goddesses become incarnate with idols, temples, gurus, rivers, animals. It's all made up, though. There's no one that had a prophetic utterance from God and with witnesses and multiple witnesses and tested over and over again, predicting the future, having it come true, all the things that the biblical prophets must do to be believed or be stoned. We don't have that for Hinduism. Buddhism is only slightly, better is not the word, maybe more developed. One man, Buddha, came up with some ideas, a much newer religion, newer than the Old Testament for sure. And Buddha never claimed to be divine, Most Buddhists believe a person has countless rebirths over and over again. Inevitably, you'll suffer through those rebirths. You'll be reincarnated, and then depending on what you did in your life, you'll be reincarnated as something else the next life. I mean, I'll probably come back as a deer. There's no doubt about that. That's what I get. Well, I know where not to go. I can say that for sure. Star Wars fans would recognize Buddhism because that's the religious basis for George Lucas's idea there. Eventually... You don't become reborn and you become one with the force, so to speak, reaching nirvana. Where does this come from? From this guy named Buddha and other people that develop the ideas. And the Dalai Lama is the most popular Buddhist today. And he just makes stuff up. That's what he does. Makes it up. New Age religion is kind of the form of Eastern religion that's found. It's, you know, it's the Oprah kind of religion. Basically, you just talk enough, and if it feels good, we all agree with it, and it kind of has a spiritism. That's it. That's that's truth. Where do they get it? They make it up. And they have crystals and little idols. Islam. Islam teaches there is a God, but he's unapproachable and basically unknowable. They believe that there is one almighty God named Allah who is infinitely superior to mankind. Though Muslims will say that they honor the prophets we honor in Scripture, they'll say you can't trust the Scripture because the Jews corrupted it. They can't point to where that corruption happened because we have so many thousands of manuscripts that don't evidence that, but they say that's why you can't trust what it says in full about Abraham, what it says about Moses, what it says about Jesus for that matter. You must listen to a man who is illiterate, a merchant, and not trustworthy, and ultimately a murderer to be their prophet, and that must be the person we've got to believe gave the revelation that we should listen to. It's made up. It was invented. Although religions have many things in common, all religions do not ultimately teach the same thing. They teach different things about the nature of God, if he can be known, and what he expects from humanity. Totally different. They cannot all be true at the same time. They can all be wrong, but it's impossible for all of them to be true. The key question is not, do religions teach some truth? Almost all of them them stumble upon truth. The real question is, can they save lost humanity? Only the Christian faith can do this. You know how I know this? Because long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That's how I know. Christianity has the witness of the prophets and the apostles, and the biblical text proves this over the span of centuries. Then with the coming of Christ, the event that all history bears witness to, we see the fulfillment of centuries of revelation. Although religions have many things in common, all religions do not ultimately teach the same thing. And only Christianity provides the answer for lost humanity. Man fell. God provided a redeemer. The Old Testament saints look forward to his eventual coming. That's what they were looking forward to in Isaiah's time. We look back at his accomplished work. All must have faith in God's Redeemer. That's the only way. This is how the passage comes to a culminating point, starting at verse 21. There is only one true Savior, he reminds, after exposing these false idols. God says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I love when a passage starts in the Old Testament especially with remember. It's a key theme in the, in the Old Testament. Remember when I did this for you. Remember when I called you out. Remember when I preserved you. Remember when I saved you. Remember when I delivered you. Remember back any one of the times if you want. Pick one. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. You may try to forget me, but I will not forget you. Verse 22, the repeat of God's promise of redemption for us. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. You've been courting these other gods. You've been messing with these other idols. Come away from them. Turn from these idols. Turn back to me, your God. I'm the one who redeemed you. I'm the one who saved you. I'm the one who has not forgotten you. God takes us back. And when we bear witness to this grace that God shows us, even when we're idolaters, the rest of the idolatry-filled world takes note. And we are witnesses to the true and living God. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Why is this significant that he redeems Jacob? Because that's the beginning of the fullness of the Abrahamic covenant being realized so that all the nations may believe on Christ and be saved. It's important that he does this work despite Israel's unfaithfulness. He does this work to save Israel in all the creation benefits. All creation fell with man's fall. All creation benefits with man's redemption. And so he refers to this first and foremost shown through Israel so that we all can know the same thing they learn. We must trust in God's Messiah to come. And that's how we have this security. That's how we have this song to sing. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Verse 24, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. 
I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Notice he uses the same language he just used to describe the idol maker, the one who stretches out stuff to make stuff. He said, I am the Lord who, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, had no help, who spread out the earth by himself who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Be sure when someone says something false, they will be found out. It will come true and they will be the fools for it. God will make that so. He will turn wise men back. They may be wise at one moment, but they won't be ultimately if it confronts or it opposes God's word. Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. He's looked forward forward to a day where God will restore the holy land uh, as a figurative event for the utter restoration of his new heavens and his new earth. It's a beautiful picture. They can't imagine at the moment because they're about to go into exile to Babylon. All this stuff will be laid waste to. But he will bring about an event that will cause these things to be restored as a proof for ultimate restoration that he will bring. In verse 28 is pivotal because a hundred plus years before a man named Cyrus was ever born, Isaiah calls him by name. This is uh, an eventual ruler of Persia who will be used of God to let the Jews go back from Persia to reconstruct the temple in Jerusalem. Verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. This prediction of the future was one of the chief ways that God distinguished himself from idols. Brothers and sisters, may God grant that we be regularly reminded of his glory and his glory alone. May God grant that we do not try to replace him with other things in our lives, stuff in our lives. May God ever cause us to worship him and acknowledge him as the only God, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we are prone to give our devotion to silly things. We need constant reminding about your glory and your worth. As we gather each Sunday to worship you, Please make our sense of devotion and praise towards you that we sense now, that we practice now, make it resonate throughout the week, informing all the things that we do, the stuff that we buy, the things we contribute our time to, our give our resources towards, our devotion to. And through the grace of Christ, please lead us to obedience and cause us to have no other gods but you. For you are not only our God, but our Savior too. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.